What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another edition of the Standick Room Only podcast. Ben Standick here. I do cover the Washington football team for the Athletic, and we're going to talk about that team, the NFL at large, today with uh, a fun guest, Robert Mays, a colleague at the Athletic. He hosts our NFL uh, podcast. You can check that out anywhere you find this podcast on iTunes. Spotify, Stitcher. Of course, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you can find it there uh, as well. And I would encourage people to do that. You can, of course, subscribe to The Athletic as well. Check out my work as a new new post up uh, on Monday. Um, To be honest, if you've listened to if you listen to my interview with Dane Brugler, our NFL Draft Insider, it basically is kind of a rehash of that. But if you haven't you can check that out, and of course, you can subscribe. You can check out all the other uh, work on there, as well as all the other podcasts we've done here on this here podcast. Uh, first off, let me just also just say, hope everybody had a great weekend. Talking to you guys on Monday afternoon. At this point, the franchise tag window opens on Tuesday. Uh, we got we had talked a little bit about that with Robert towards the end of. The podcast, obviously, that's of interest to the Washington football team world because of Brandon Scherf. Washington gave um, Scherf the tag last year. He played on that for roughly $15 million. It would seem to be highly doubtful that they would go down that route again, just based on logic and talking to folks around the league. Um, Look, of course, this is the the team that, that... handed out a tag twice to Kirk Cousins. And even though that was incredibly weird, it's also a quarterback. I, I guess I would just say on this case, you know, with that idea, I think Washington would presumably like to come to a long-term deal with Brandon Scherf. But at the same time, it's a tricky situation. Um, you know, it's hard to – I think it's hard to pinpoint an exact dollar amount we're, we're looking at here when we don't quite know where the salary cap is for the league. It was announced recently that – the, the, the floor would be $180 million at the minimum, uh, but we don't quite know the overall structure of that yet. Uh, that's obviously a, a down you know, from, from where it, it normally, from, from projections pre-pandemic, um, and, and that could hurt probably not people at the top like Brandon Sheriff, but could hurt some others down the line. But maybe that means instead of getting 16 to $17 million annually, maybe now you're looking at you know 15 to $16 million. Annually, and I think the big question for Washington on some level is going to have to be, well, there's two questions. One, Brandon Scherf's had injury history. He's missed he missed three games uh, last year. He missed five games in 2019, and he missed eight games in 2018. That's you know basically one third of Washington's games over the last three seasons. You're going to pay out that kind of big money over you know a multi-year deal. You know, you need you need to know that player is available. Obviously, he is one of the better players, not just on this team, but at his position in the league. He was selected to the All Pro team last year. I, whatever that means, some of those designation selections are a little bit. You know, how much is it based on reality, and how much is it based on reputation? He is obviously one of the better guards, regardless. But you know, kudos to him. He's going to use that as leverage without question uh, when he's in having any kind of discussions with Washington. Um, as, as he should, and if you know, for Washington's perspective, you already gave up Trent Williams a year ago. It seems reasonable that you're probably not going to bring back Ryan Kerrigan now. Are you going to, within a year time, lose three of these guys who have been considered to be sort of maybe not the 
maybe not the face of the franchise, but guys who are considered to be, you know, thought to be Washington football team players for life, and you give up three of them in a year, that seems like an awful tough situation to be in. Plus, from a culture fit, Brandon Scherf makes a ton of sense. So I don't know if I buy it from that perspective. However, there are the injuries. And if you're Washington, you know, where are you going? Like, I think if, if you're Washington, you're sort of viewing a long-term play. Keeping Sheriff around can make can make some some sense for sure. Maybe even there's something to be said for, you know, putting more money into this year when you have some money and having leaving yourself room available going forward so that if you're going to take a bigger leap going forward uh, <clears throat> in terms of sort of going for it, you know, as we know, the quarterback market not that exciting right now, to say the least. So maybe there's makes some more sense to sort of figure out a quarterback for this year and wait and see where you are next year um, and then make more moves aggressively going forward. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling here. I guess my point is just that uh, with Scherf, I don't think it's a complete slam dunk that you automatically give a player at that position, you know, possibly $16 million a year. I do think that the, the tag, which it's 120%, of what he was making last year. So we're, we're talking 18 million. That doesn't make any sense unless Washington is being all in. This is the, we're going for it this year, but it's hard to see how Washington is doing that when you look at the quarterback options available to them. So I would be stunned if they use the tag again, meaning not even so much if they place it on him initially, but that would still seem to be a bit unlikely, but more that that's the final execution that, that, that we get to that point. But in any event, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting scenario, as are so many of Washington's situ- scenarios this year. Whether we're talking about quarterback, whether we're talking about um, Brandon Sheriff, whether we're talking about you know should they go forward or not, and Robert and I'll get into that in just a second. So that's sort of the big thing on tap for Washington this week, and obviously a lot of other circumstances as well. Will the Bears place a tag on Allen Robinson? Um, you know, who's considered to be the best receiver in this class. We had our Bears insider Kevin Fishbane on here recently, and he thought that probably is a path that they would go down. So that would take off a big-time receiver. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, may very well place the tag on Chris Godwin. Same with the Detroit Lions and Kenny Galladay. If that all happens now, all of a sudden this deep receiver class is thinned out a little bit, but there's still a, 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 fair, a, a fair amount of options for sure. Um but that, that, that's going to be the most interesting part of the tag is who gets it and whether Brandon Sheriff does or not. Again, I would doubt it, but, you know, anything is conceivable uh, for sure. All right, let's, uh, let's get done with that. Let's get into my conversation. Uh, a fun one for sure. Got into all kinds of things about the Washington football team and the NFL with Robert Mays. Uh, and uh, he, by the way, you can follow Robert on Twitter at Robert Mays. You can follow me at Ben Standig. And uh, let's get to it. Here's my conversation uh, with Robert Mays on the Standig Room Only podcast. All right. Uh, joining the podcast, as promised, he is the host of the Athletics Football Show podcast. Uh, he is uh, a go-to voice in the NFL community, and he is I don't know if well-rested is the proper term in in this pandemic situation, but he at least is coming off of a few days away from the world. He is Robert Mays. Robert, man, I really appreciate it. Great to officially meet you face-to-face, as it were. Yeah, this is our best option right now, as was my best option for vacation, being sitting on my couch and watching a bunch of movies and Top Chef. That's what vacation is in 2021, apparently. 
<laughs> well, wait. So you, yeah, I saw you. You tweeted about Richard Blaze uh, the other day. I, I, I saw his when he won All Stars. Spoiler, sorry. Uh, when he won All Stars, it's already like it was 2011. I can't believe it's already been that long uh, since that happened. Uh, so wh- why were you looking him up? Because were you watching that season or? That's exactly what I'm doing. Did I'm, I just ruin for you? I've already seen them all. I've already oh seen God. them all. So I, I already knew. It was one of those things where we watched Ted Lasso and we watched all of it by like Thursday. And I'm like, all right, is there something else that's light and entertaining that I just don't have to really engage with that I can just put on in the background? And we couldn't find anything. So I just started watching old seasons of Top Chef and it was great. So that's, that's how we got there. And uh, it was definitely worth it. It's very soothing to me watching it so if i'm trying to relax a little bit it's always something that's worth putting up i I, on my list of goals like once the season ended and i as i just said to you i don't really have to be anywhere physically until training camp (laughs) so i'm like okay well how can i maximize this time and not just be a bump on the log and i've got the list of things to do things around the house get in better shape all that fun stuff but i was like okay from entertainment purposes there's all these movies that I've blown off for years or just never got to, I need to catch up. But what I inevitably do is to watch something that's brand new, while it may be fun and entertaining, you really have to focus. And honestly, sometimes I don't really want to focus. I want it to be on and to watch, but I don't want to focus. So I end up watching Moneyball 20 times as I've now done during the the pandemic. Uh, you know, go back to various Tarantino movies, like things I see, I do this all the time. So I can relate to the idea of, something you some not to use the term comfort food with top chef but it's sort of the that that aspect of it's it's safe i know what this is it's not i don't have to work that hard to watch this i totally can relate to that so i've been i i always watch i usually watch like at least 50 or so movies new movies every year like movies that came out that year that's when i can go to the theater i'm really good about it but now that we can't go to the theater anymore it was really bad last year so you know, Steven Soderbergh every year, he has a diet of all the media he consumes. Like he keeps track of it. And I don't want to do that with everything, but with movies, I'm like, all right, I'm going to keep a list of every movie I watch, not just new ones. Like literally every single movie I watch to be more intentional about what I'm watching and why. And it's been really helpful already. Cause it's like, all right, I, if I'm going to do this and like really look myself in the consumption mirror when it comes to this stuff, I want to be able to like what's looking back at me. So it's definitely led to some different choices than I might've made otherwise. I did just throw on Midnight Run last night though, when I had two hours before sleep. Great choice. Wait, like, I, I hadn't seen it in years, but great choice. I swear to you, this is not a bit. Yesterday, I watched Midnight Run for the exact same. <laughs> I was literally flipping through HBO Max. That's exactly what through, I did. I was going through all the movies. And at some point I was like, I just wanted, and, and yeah, Midnight Run came, I've seen it a bunch of times, uh, and I just haven't seen it in a while, for, certainly not from start to finish, that's hilarious, I literally, was, I watched that, I, I think last night I fell asleep around the point of, um, uh, before, uh, I think, the, the, like the first time, um, the other bounty hunter catches up to, to Robert. De Niro oh, on the, on train. the train. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. around there is when I, uh, they got off the train. Yeah. Uh, that, that, okay. That is beyond crazy that we both watched the most random movie uh, last night. 
It was just easy entertainment on, on Saturday when I needed to burn some time. I watched a Russian silent movie from 1926. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make something that's a little bit easier to engage with here. Uh, I did not do that. You, you have <laughs> we, we're, we're not that we're not that in simpatico on, on that front. Um, all right, we'll see what, what else what else we agree on, or, or maybe have differences of opinion on with regards to to football. And obviously, you know, you you you're you're paying attention to the whole league, and I'm almost I'm always fascinated by how much a team like Washington that wasn't really in the conversation for they did make the playoffs, but nobody was considering them to be a contender, but yet simultaneously they had an insane year, especially off the field, even before the season started, there was so much happening. And then, you know, you had these incredible stories, Alex Smith, Ron Rivera, and they got hot late in the year. I guess just before we get into anything kind of moving forward from your 2020 perspective, what was the watch? What was it like sort of, paying attention to the Washington football team from your uh, perch. It was interesting. I mean, I think that the biggest question was, could they kind of get back to respectability where, how do they play? What is just the overall kind of culture and feel to that building and the product that they're putting on the field. And I don't think it would be crazy to say a lot of people expected them to be one of the four to five worst teams in the NFL last season, just based on the talent on the roster, questions at quarterback, all of the turnover, everything associated with that franchise. And the fact that they weren't, I think, is such a testament to what Ron Rivera did there in their first season and kind of getting them all moving in the same direction, having the defense play extremely hard, stuff like that. So that was my main takeaway is like this is a bedrock that they can build upon. Now, what does that build look like? And I think that that's kind of where everyone has gotten to with this team as we head into what could be a pretty pivotal offseason for them in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, during the season, I lost track of the date, but like after Dwayne Haskins gets benched, I started to convene a panel of uh, people like a Daniel Jeremiah and some others to say, okay, well, Washington is going to need a quarterback and what do we do? And everybody took conversation and maybe I even led them there to, well, when they get a top five pick, Here's yeah, exactly. To consider. And then all of a sudden, it's like from that point on, it was like, oh, wait, no. And now they're picking 19th. And now they're probably not going to maybe even get a quarterback in the draft without trading up. And uh, this free agent pool is kind of a mess. Um, yeah, I, I do think on some level, like we all around here, we keep talking about different names for different quarterbacks. And what do you do? I think a lot of it really does come down to how do they self-evaluate the situation? Again, so from here, like I'm like on the one hand, they got hot late in the year. They won five of their last seven regular season games. You know, they, they, they hung in there with Tampa Bay. Uh, they did all that without consistency at the, at the most important position. And you still have, though, a lot of young players. Obviously, the, whole, the entire defensive line, first-round picks with Chase Young being the most notable. You got Terry McLaurin, Antonio Gibson. There's lots of reasons to be optimistic. And if you get a good quarterback play, maybe you go from seven to ten. On the other hand, you know, a lot of those wins down the stretch were against teams with backup quarterbacks or teams that were sort of struggling – and, you know, Tampa Bay got over 500 yards of offense, even against Washington, supposedly really good defense. So the question is sort of like, where are they? Like, how close are they to really contending? And then thus from that, what do you do at quarterback or maybe elsewhere? So I guess from your from your perspective, like what how do you even like look at Washington in that way? Are they on the verge or are they still maybe a step two away where they shouldn't like sort of push it all in this year? I think they're a step or two away. And I think that you have to understand that. And the most dangerous thing you can do as an NFL team is say, we're one blank away. And even if that answer is quarterback, 
I think that type of thinking can be dangerous. If you're Washington and you're a, a fan of the Washington football team and you're kind of stepping back and saying, all right, well, we have a top five defense and you use that and you kind of treat that as a given and write it off to the side and then move forward, you've already made your first mistake because that's not how any of this works. I, you have the type of defensive structure you can feel good about. You have a top five front. You have elements of that defense like, all right, we can build on this. Cameron Curl is a find. Stuff like that. That's the type of stuff you should be saying to yourself. Not, we can't lose Ronald Darby because we were a top five defense last year. That's the type of stuff where that's a slippery slope. Because then if you do that, you say, all right, we're a top five defense. Let's operate as though that's true. Then why wouldn't we trade two first round picks for a quarterback that is a marginal upgrade because we're so close. And that's where you start getting into mistakes. And I think that they've done a good job of at least up to this point doing this methodically when it came to the, comes to the quarterback position. I think trading a first round pick and more for Matthew Stafford, probably worth it. Trading a first round pick and whatever for a guy like Carson Wentz or whoever else might be available. That's a different kind of story. So I just think they have to be measured in the expectations they have and kind of be able to see what happened last year with clear eyes and understand what elements of it are replicable, which are not, and where that puts you as you kind of head into year two of this version of the franchise. Yeah, I agree. One, one philosophy I always go with is I think teams make the mistake when they go for it. I mean, there's a, sometimes there's the occasional, like going with going to get Tom Brady is an all all in move, but it's Tom Brady. I can sort of go, I can sort of live with that, uh, especially to get some credibility and, and, and attention to that franchise. But in general, it's also the goal- they had one of the best they had one of the best rosters in the league, top to bottom, before they did that. You right. can't say that about Washington. This is not a ready made. We drop in the quarterback. We're a Super Bowl contender, no matter who the quarterback is. Right. And also Brady, they didn't have to trade anything for him. They just had to yep. sign him. And then you know whatever, it's money. It's not. It's not really setting. The, if anything, they just took a, a shot. If it didn't work. You had Tom Brady for two years. Um, but I would say, so not that you should put yourself in position as best you can to contend so that if the breaks go your way, the injuries are, are, are on your side, the literal ball bounces your way, other teams fall apart like what happened in the NFC East this year where everybody else kind of went by the wayside. And you put yourself in the best position when those things happen that you're the team that takes advantage of it. Andy Reid forever was was on the doorstep and never could get over the hump last year, finally things work their way. They did this year. They make the Super Bowl, and obviously it didn't win, but like that to me is, it makes more sense. So I agree. Like I, I'm not somebody here going with like Deshaun Watson, even if he becomes available, not to, he's not really good. Of, of course he is, but like, I'm not necessarily all in on trading every pick I have and all these things to get this guy when I don't have, I don't know what else I have here. Uh, anyway, even, even if you say, well, yeah, he's so good. There's just not many options out there for me. Like where I'm, I, I don't think that I, I don't think they're close enough. Like you said, to go, hard um uh, to go hard on anybody um, i think for him i would do whatever it takes would you? i think for yeah i think with him i would do whatever it takes i think he's the type of guy that it would be hard to overpay for for other guys i think it's a different consideration and i think that they just need to understand what they want at quarterback this year and where they want to be this this to me feels like the perfect sort of team for a guy like ryan fitzpatrick where you have somebody that can keep the train on the tracks in 2021, somebody who's good enough that it allows you to evaluate the other pieces on your offense. I think that's the biggest mistake they could make is if they roll wet with Alex Smith again, 
where they just are not exactly sure with what they want. And they get this baseline basement level of quarterback play like they did last year. I mean, this team finished 32nd in passing the VOA last year. They were the worst team in the NFL throwing the football by a wide margin. And I think that makes it difficult to evaluate everything. It makes it difficult to evaluate Scott Turner. If it makes it difficult to evaluate what Terry McLaurin really is, all of that stuff. And I think that this year, if somebody better becomes available and you could, let's Sam Darnold, for example, if you can trade a third round pick for Sam Darnold, if you can give the Carson Wentz package up for Darnold, I think that would be okay because he gives you possible upside for later on down the road. But if that sort of option disappears and you just need somebody that can play quarterback for you at a functional level, I think a guy like Ryan Fitzpatrick would make sense. I just don't think they should be put into a place where they're operating out of desperation or from a place of weakness, because that would be accelerating their timeline more than it needs to be accelerated in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I don't even know what I was saying about Watson. I mean, I just don't think he's even become available. So uh, I'm sort of dismissing it, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, and ironically, like to your point of like Fitzpatrick helping you evaluate, that was my thing last year. It was so obvious, even before he got benched at Dwayne Haskins, they were having to play with like sort of a really, really basic playbook. And from that, you could not tell, including, like you said, Scott Turner, what they could do. And even though Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, Taylor Heineke weren't, you know, weren't elite quarterbacks, they at least the, the playbook was opened up in much different ways than it was uh, before when, when it was Dwayne. You saw that happen again when, when Haskins came back for a little bit. Uh, for sure. You, you mentioned Fitzpatrick. I want to veer off of him for a sec because he is what he is. You know what you're getting with Ryan Fitzpatrick, and that's why you're saying the appeal. Uh, on your podcast, uh, on, on the NFL podcast that you do on, on The Athletic you, with uh, with Lindsey Jones, you – so this is now goes back a week or so ago before you uh, took a break. Um, you had a, a, a rant, I'll, I'll say for lack of a better thing, where you <laughs> talked about – I think you were talking about the Bears, and this was at that point when Carson Wentz was still available – for, for trade and the bears and the Colts were uh, the teams in the mix and the Colts obviously get him. But you were saying, I believe that you didn't like him for the bears, not a bad Carson Wentz, but it's that Carson Wentz is going to need a certain amount of work done on him to make him fixable. And maybe the Colts could get it done with their structure, but you weren't confident that the bears can get it done. And I think that's like a really good point. It's not a matter of sometimes with is quarterback X or player X, fixable it's can this team do it and I'm looking at like these available quarterbacks for Washington like Fitzpatrick is sort of a safe solid option because we know it is but there are other guys maybe who could be your version of a Ryan Tannehill and that would include Marcus Mariota Jameis Winston Mitch Trubisky maybe Sam Darnold include him and maybe even say Teddy Bridgewater because he's obviously not coming off a great season at Carolina but there's a reason to think maybe he makes sense here Marty Herney signed him a year ago and Scott Turner mm-hmm. had him in Minnesota. Uh, maybe this is hard to, to gauge from the outside, but you pay attention to this league. What's your sense of Washington's ability to fix a quarterback? Do you think they're one of those places that if you took one of these broken parts that could be uh, fixable? I think it's hard to say right now, uh, schematically where that is. I have faith in Scott Turner's ability to do this. I, I think that Scott's a pretty smart guy. I like a lot of the stuff they did in Carolina uh, it, during the end of his time there. Even when his dad was the coordinator, you know that was a collaborative effort. And I think a lot of the things that they were bringing to that offense were interesting to me. So I think that they can get there. And I honestly think you, even if you look at the game that Taylor Heineke played in the playoffs and how much better the offense looked 
with him in there than it had at other points that season. Just certain route concepts that require some depth to them. Like he had a sail on down the right sideline, I want to say in the first half, that's just the type of throw Alex Smith wasn't making. So just how much the playbook opened up and where they could attack down the field a little bit, even with Heineke, gives me a sense that with a quarterback that's just has a little bit more functional mobility, arm strength, everything else, the offense could look pretty good on an X's and O's level as early as next year. But that's still a little bit murkier than it would be for a team like the Colts when we've seen it, for example. And again, the team like the Bears where we've seen it in the other direction. I think on a personnel level, they're absolutely set up to give a quarterback everything he needs to succeed. Left tackle is obviously a question. You know, that's going to be what they need to address. We'll see what happens with Scherf. But let's say, for example, Scherf comes back. You have a center you feel really good about. You have Scherf. You have Morgan Moses. Schweiger is coming back next year, correct? Yes. So, so you, that you have a left guard that you feel pretty solid about. That's a decent offensive line. I mean, at the Col- if the Colts are in the same boat, just at a slightly higher level. But I think that you 100% could have a functional group of five you feel really good about in Washington next year. Let's say if you use your first-round pick on a tackle, which there's supposed to be plenty of them available. Then you look at this group of receivers, both in the draft and in free agency, we live in a glut in a, a world where there's a glut of receivers all the time. And I just think the amount of resources that Washington were to have, let's say you go out and get Ryan Fitzpatrick for $10 million this year and you release Alex Smith, you're looking at $50 million in space still. You can go get not only one pass catcher, but two if you need them. So I just think from a resources perspective, from a coaching perspective, and just with the guys they already have on that roster, they are set up to be a pretty good spot, a pretty good landing spot for a quarterback if you don't spend a ton of resources to go get that quarterback. And I think that's kind of the give and take that you have to consider with this whole thing. Right. It, it's such a weird group. Like I totally understood why they made the play for Stafford because he's, it's not even that he's very good. He has the highest floor of like all these guys, you know what you're getting yeah. out of him and everybody else is like, I mean, I guess you get, you kind of know what you're getting with Fitzpatrick, but at the same time, as good as it or as fun as he is, I guess, you know, it's, if you have certain aspirations, maybe he doesn't get you there, but for where they're at right now, I, I agree. It's not a bad spot or any of those other sort of misfit toys that I mentioned, the, the Winstons, the the Trubisky's, the Mariotas, any of those guys you find interesting? I or think maybe Mariota could be interesting. I oh. think Sam, I think Sam Darnold and Mariota would both be interesting. You know, and these are not exciting names. I mean, it's just, and I think that Washington fans would probably be yelling that at, at their phones right now. It's those are not names where you're getting as pumped as you would about a Matthew Stafford or a Deshaun Watson, guys like that. But there's a reason that they're going to be available for much less. I'll tell you what, I think people around here, because they are, don't want to go into a year with, there are people who are all in on Taylor Heineke, but like broadly, I think people are like not that excited with what they have. I think any of these other names, guys who are picking the top five, I think people are talking themselves into all of them right now. (laughs) I think it's just not about, don't get pushed off your timeline and pay a price that you're not, that you shouldn't be paying. I think if they were to have given away a first and a third for Matthew Stafford, you do that a hundred times out of a hundred because of what you said, the floor he gives you, the fact that he's not that old, it's not a one or two year proposition. It's not like bringing in Phillip Rivers. You probably have four or five years with Matthew Stafford if you want them. So that type of move makes sense to me. But I think with Stafford off the table and potentially Watson off the table, 
don't overpay for some of these other guys. Understand that you don't have to do it this year. If you bring in Ryan Fitzpatrick this year and you get to go sign a couple guys, you feel better about your infrastructure. You land a tackle in the draft. You could be sitting there next year at eight and eight with the 17 pick and say, you know what? We have enough now. Let's make a move up the board. Now we feel like we are in a position to do this. I think if you wait a little bit longer, you have more information that you've gathered about your roster, about your timeline, all of that other stuff. That's only a good thing. I just don't think you should be pushed off your spot if you're Marty Herney and Martin Mayhew, Ron Rivera right now. I think that's the most important thing. Um, yeah, no, that it's um, it's interesting. It, it's it, I mean, this league, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when people plan for more than one, two years at a time. <laughs> and now it just doesn't seem like any, it, it doesn't seem like any matters. I mean, these trades, uh, were, were these quarterbacks with these massive dead cap numbers? People are just like, eh, screw it. We're just going to move on from that. We're not worrying about, uh, we're, we're just, we're just, we're just, we're just, just adjusting on the fly. We're just going to make moves now. We're not going to, not going to worry about it. Um, the Carson Wentz trade, I mean, obviously it happened, I guess, while you were away, but presumably you're on top of that. I, I was. <laughs> I know like it feels like a lot of the the perspective nationally is just how much Philadelphia screwed this up. They, the investment they put in from the time he was drafted and, and, and the, the extensions and all that stuff and how they screwed it up and therefore having to trade him is not good. I, I kind of feel like on the assumption he's going to start this year and therefore that conditional second turns into a first, I kind of think Philadelphia did really good in this trade for a guy who was an incredibly depressed asset at this point. What, and, and it makes like it feels like the two trades it's it basically we're in like this real seller's market it feels like and him him even i felt that even more than the stafford trade on some level oh i definitely agree i think that getting what they did for him is a win i don't think you can think about think about everything we've i don't think you can look at it from the perspective of think about all the ways we've invested in him this is so terrible it's like that world doesn't exist anymore like you already gave up those picks five years ago like i don't i wouldn't think about it that way you probably should but I think if you're Philadelphia, you have to be pretty thrilled about what you got back for him, all things considered, and where the way he played last season. I mean, I don't think – the Indy situation is so unique in that you have a spot where they need a quarterback, where they feel like they're win now. There are only so many guys that they would be able to bring in and feel like, all right, we can really hit the ground running, and Reich being there. It was just kind of a perfect storm – of a team willing to not overpay, but give up something decent because they understand their timeline. So it just felt like this, all of these kind of factors converged at the same time to make this even possible for the Eagles. So I I absolutely think that they should be pleased about how this all went down over the last month, if not over the last year. Yeah. I almost wonder if you could give like Chris Ballard, like truth serum, does he think to himself, man, now I really wish Frank Reich wasn't my coach because I'm kind of being I, having to go with this Carson Wentz thing. I got to know what he thinks of him, but just like it became too easy to, to just sort of make that connection. Like I can go through all the quarterbacks that are available for Washington and like, you know, Ken Zampezi was Andy Dalton's coach or quarterback coach back in Cincinnati or some of the Scott Turner, Teddy Bridgewater stuff, but nothing like that where I'm going to have to take this reclamation project to this degree, but I have the guy who fixed him or made him not fixed him, but helped him become a really, really good quarterback. He's here. It's too easy. I'm sure Frank Reich was pushing it. I would love to know what Chris Bauer really thinks of Carson Wentz, but you know, obviously they made the trade. I think that if, if I, based on my read of the situation, 
Uh, there are concerns about whether he's just broken because that's a real possibility. I think that that you can read into that with the price tag and you can read into that with the stipulations on that pick. I mean, if they're two and seven uh, based on you know, things going, the, trading away a future first round pick is only bad when you protected yourself, when you haven't protected yourself from a disastrous season. If you trade a future for a future first with no conditions on it whatsoever, and you have the season from hell, like the Texans just did, you give away a top five pick. That's the concern. But if you're having the season from hell, you put him on the bench and it doesn't matter, or he's gotten hurt and he's not going to hit that anyway. So I think that's the thinking there, but I've that the under the possibility that he's just not going to be there. I think they understand that's real. I also think they understand that Frank Reich is the guy that can fix him. I think that Chris Ballard has an outsized amount of trust and belief in Frank Reich as a coach and in what Frank Reich can do and see with quarterbacks. And that absolutely played into this decision and why they were willing to make it. Yeah, for, for, for sure. It makes all sense. Uh, all right. So we're here, we're talking with uh, Robert Mays, host of the athletics NFL podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Robert Mays. I really appreciate uh, Robert uh, taking the time, his first like foray back into the real world after uh, binging top, top chef. Do you have a favorite, uh, Top Chef uh, contestant of all time? Oh, I don't know if it's a favorite Top Chef contestant, but I rewatched the Vegas season, and it's just so much better than the other ones. Like that's the season with the Voltagios oh. and Jen Carroll and Kevin Gillespie. Who I, we've always said this, my girlfriend and I, when we talk about it, Kevin might not be the best chef of that group, but he consistently makes the food I want to eat the most. Like I, every single time he puts on the out, I'd be like, that, I want that. That sounds really good. So that season is like, it holds a special place in my heart. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about like, like bird and magic was like a too perfect of a rivalry. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the way they're both you know, East coast, West coast, uh, the, the different, very similar mental games, but they came out of uh, different uh, physically and the whole college thing and then all that stuff. You could have built a better rivalry. I would argue the Voltaggio brothers going into the house <laughs> is like this is like the same thing or better. I mean, two brothers going head to head, they're very different in terms of how they approach things. One is the natural talent, the other one's the grinder. You had the mom there in the finals, uh, just you know, having to watch and has just to console one son, and the other one is his highest moment. It was unbelievable. And then you had all the other characters you mentioned, uh, Mike Isabella and Jen Carroll and all that stuff. Oh my god, it was uh. An amazing, uh, amazing season. It was, and I think they kind of redid the way they chose the people after that because there, there are no more like Michael Voltaggios that come on Top Chef. Like at a certain point, they're just like, this is probably too far at one end of the spectrum. Like we need to pull it back a tiny bit because if you look at it, I think during the finale, Tom says the Voltaggios and Kevin won 12 of the 13 elimination challenges before the final finale. It's like, all right, we probably need a little bit more parody associated with the top chef world than we did. It's like instituting free agency in 1993. Yeah, no. And, and look, during this pandemic, I mean, the, the last season of top chef was one of those shows that really helped uh, get, get through some of the early stages. And it is when we didn't have sports, right? I mean, it's not sports, but it, it has a competitive element to it and it really can help fill the void uh, for, uh, for, 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 for sure. Um, let, let me, uh, let me ask use your, your, your national thoughts to, to broaden this out beyond quarterbacks. Washington's got some other needs, particularly wide receiver and linebacker. 
Uh, wide receiver is a pretty good group, obviously, starting with Allen Robinson and kind of working your way down. Linebacker, you got Levante David and, and some other names. Matt Milano just became, it looks like he's going to become, uh, he was already afraid. It looks like he's actually going to be able to hit the market uh, for real. Um, you know, whether Washington sort of goes for it or sort of like what we were kind of saying, like recognizes where they're at and starts building towards something without you know going overly crazy is there anybody in free agency at either one of those spots or maybe it's a different spot for you if you're going to make a, an investment that stands out to you as somebody that kind of makes sense for uh, for these guys i think with linebacker i i've gotten to a place where it'd be hard for me to pay one that amount of money the guys like Levante david and matt milano who are probably going to be up near the top i mean I looked at some potential kind of theoretical contracts for milano and those deals are like in a five-year 50 million dollar range that's a lot of money to me to give a linebacker. Uh, you have two third round picks this year. That's a spot where you can find starters at that position. So I would be more willing to build through the draft in, in the middle rounds at that spot. You can find Fred Warners in the third round at that position. You don't have to be this Uber athlete. That's Devin white. That you drafted in the top five. So linebacker is something where I would be patient and measured in the way that I approach that receiver. You hear my dog just, pounding water out of her ball molly all good with receiver i think it i've tried to look at it from this perspective where i you re the kind of reverse engineer teams that end up being good in the ways that they spend their money and i don't know i love alan robinson i'm a bears fan i've i watch him week in week out i think alan robinson is phenomenal but it's about opportunity costing free agency. So let's say that Allen Robinson costs $20 million a year, hypothetically, which seems realistic when considering he's hitting the open market at 28 and what the market at the position looks like right now. Would you rather have Allen Robinson at $20 million a year or some combination of Curtis Samuel and Marvin Jones for the same price? And I tend to lean with the second option. Because I just think that spreading out your free agency money and using it as a way to mitigate need rather than a way to pay sticker price for certain players is typically how you extract value from deals in free agency. And I just think a guy like Marvin Jones, who's only three years older than Allen Robinson, who was very good when he was on the field last season, who gives you a lot of the same skill sets that Allen Robinson does would you be willing to pay twice as much for Allen Robinson that you'll probably have to pay for Marvin Jones? I don't know exactly where it's going to fall, but that's the feeling that I would get when you consider how much they're at the forefront of people's minds in these conversations. I just think that's the way you have to think about it. How can you extract value from the way we spread this money out? And I think at the receiver position, there are ways to do that without necessarily chasing like Kenny Galladay, for example, right? How much more is Kenny Galladay going to get in free agency than Marvin Jones? Probably more than he should. And I just think that's kind of how I'd be thinking about it. And also this year, there's just a lot more options. Like last year, it was kind of like Amari Toomer, uh, Amari Toomer, <laughs> Amani Cooper, <laughs> and then just kind of, uh, you know, a bunch of guys that you're just kind of guessing on. So they went hard on one. But when they didn't get him, they didn't they didn't just take that money and throw it somewhere else. They just kind of waited. This year, there are a lot of other guys. You get further down the list. You mentioned Curtis Samuel. It's an obvious connection here because of the Carolina ties. I mean, you know, uh, T.Y. Hilton, whoever. There's lots of other guys further down the list that you could look at that may all cost some money, but not the $20 million that you're talking about and give you what you need. Plus, you have Terry McLaurin. You have a guy who could be the the main guy, but you need more with him to help maximize 
what he's at. So um, I, I think that makes uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, I got some random questions for you. We'll come back to the football in a second. I got random questions I asked most guests. I'm ready. I didn't spring you. I didn't. I didn't warn you, but I think I think that's okay. Right. Uh, you've got a few Twitter followers. Who on Twitter that doesn't follow you do you wish followed you? Oh my gosh. You know what? This is so funny. This is, uh, we'll bring it all back. I have said so many times over the last year as I've started watching it that I really wish I were friends with Tom Colicchio. <laughs> like he just seems like the, like the best dude. Like there is just like the way he talks about stuff. And even like in the moments where you can tell the show is overly edited and you can't really see them having conversations. There are just aspects of it. Like when they went fishing in the season, the all-star season, and he's talking about how when you when you kill it, you respect it. And like that's just like I would just love to like hear him talk about stuff. So he definitely is somebody where like, man, I wish I were friends with that guy, even though he's like 25 years older than me. So that would be my just in my mind answer right now. It'd be like, I would love to be followed by and be friends with Tom Colicchio. He he was somebody again early in the pandemic when the restaurant business obviously and it's yep. still struggling. He was very outspoken. And I was listening to a lot of his conversations about this and at first i'm thinking all right he's just going to say you know he wants his industry to be saved which is understandable of course but it was even more than that he's really he went deep into philosophy of just how these things how how it works and what 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 they need and what's important and how it connects to all of us and um and his really advocacy for it was you know was beyond just he he isn't just there he's not simon cow or anything i mean he's not there just as a as some random voice to sort of make entertaining television he really gives a crap about this industry has deep thoughts in it, and he seems like a fun guy who, you know, uh, he, he's a sincere, a, a sincere, real person who's a, who's a smart guy as well. He reminds me of coaches I liked. Like there are certain moments where he'll be doing some of the criticism, and it's almost like I'm disappointed in you because you're better than this. Like he'll, there are moments when they'll be at the judges' table, and you could tell he's like teaching them things. Where it's just like he's like he'll ask leading questions be like well when you're doing this what are you supposed to do and they'd be like i know i know and you could just that's something where like like my offensive line coach in high school when he would kind of get on me about stuff and be like i know i know it's like you've disappointed someone that you respect a lot and you could just even sense that that they develop it with him over the course of that season i've always just appreciated that for yeah i'm with you um favorite about athlete of all time Since you're a Chicago guy, in my head I'm picturing William Refrigerator Perry, but I, I don't know if that's oh, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm not that old. Uh, I did have really... when I had Jay Gruden on. He actually picked Walter Payton. I think. That's a really, really interesting question. I I've never really thought about it that much. I've always like been more attached with like teams and various units than I was with players. Like I loved like the 2005 Bears defense, for example, stuff like that. I really don't know. I really don't have an answer to that. There are guys that I feel like I'm more attached to than other people are. And like, I think Philip Rivers is a perfect example. Like, I think if you were to pull every foot person that covers football nationally and ask them how good they think Philip Rivers is, I would probably be in the top 0.11% of how good I think Philip Rivers is compared to everyone else. So there are just guys for whom 
I develop like a, an affinity because I like their games that are, but I wouldn't call it my favorite athlete of all time. I mean, I, I grew up watching Michael Jordan. So I think that that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, I, one of my earliest sports memories from the, when I was like seven years old is the day that Michael Jordan came back. Like I remember that very like vividly. And I remember watching the second three-peat vividly. I mean, the Bears have been so bad that like Brian Urlacher's politics are extremely problematic. So he's probably not the answer for me. But like that, those groups I really loved. Like I loved those early Lovey Smith era Bears teams. Also loved watching Julius Peppers play when he was in Chicago. So this is all a very long way of saying I don't really have one. I just have guys that like piqued my interest for a very long time. Over the next couple of years, uh, people will think it's Devin Hester because I am so will I am ready during these Hall of Fame conversations to be that Game of Thrones gift where I'm just pulling out the sword and like, I will take on all comers when it comes to Devin Hester's Hall of Fame eligibility. So I think it's just kind of pick a like random bear that played from like 2000 to 2010. It would probably be the answer. All right. Fair enough. Um, based on a hobby or a habit, what's a Hall of Fame that you would be qualified to be, to be inducted in based on a hobby or a habit? The, 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 the listeners have heard me say I would be in the 7-Eleven Hall of Fame based on the frequency in which I st- uh, uh, visits the uh, the establishment. I, I'm an all-time Taco Bell patron. Like even like later in my life, I've I still love it. Like that's just one thing that um, I, I've I've been very very good at that for a very long time. Uh, ironically, that would make you, I believe, the second person that I've had on the podcast in the Taco Bell Hall of Fame because Tarek El Bashir, our Capitals uh, insider. <laughs> he is a go-to absolute Taco Bell. Like that might he might have had Taco Bell cater his wedding. I'm not really sure. It's possible. There's one right down my the street from me in Chicago, and it's just it's so dangerous. So that's the one where I've I've definitely I would throw that out there. <sighs> that that that's works. probably it. That's probably it. I I think that's what I would say. All right. Uh, obviously, you're you're when you're when you're doing your research, you're thinking about the league. You're using all kinds of whatever information is at your hand, what's your like go-to advanced stat? Something that when you, obviously it's maybe relative to the position or the game or what you're looking at, but like what's something when you, when you really want to think about it or you look at a situation, you, you pull up and you feel really good about what this stat's going to tell me. I mean, I've spent, I open football outsiders every day to look at DVOA historically current, like everything else. It's just been a tool that I've used consistently for the last 15 years. Like, I mean, since I was in college, I remember using it. Like my first football outsiders almanac, which is what it used to be called, was with Namdi Asamoa on the cover in like 2007 or something. So, I mean, that's just been something I've consistently used for a really, really long time. Um, Yeah, I would say that's it. I mean, I use all of them. I, I consistently use EPA per play now with a lot of quarterback numbers. Um, but I mean, for the most part, I just have consistently used that like year in and year out, like even since even before I started doing this. All right. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to argue with that one. Uh, all right. Last question. So we talk about Washington and what do you kind of do with them and, and, and how to, how to not rebuild, but I guess how to just keep this thing, keep some momentum going forward. Their biggest decision this off season is basically going to be what to do with Brandon Scherf. 
Uh, he's their first all-pro selection since 1996, which is an insane stat in and of itself. And the fact that that person was a punter is even odder. Uh, he's obviously one of the better guards in the league, whatever. Health has been a bit of an issue. Uh, either way, he played on the franchise tag last year at $15 million, And it feels like an, you know, a, a multi-year deal is probably going to be in that 15 to $16 million range. It's a lot of money for a guard, but at the same point, he is one of the better ones in the league and he's their guy and he's a good for the culture and all that. So what do you, in the context of like what Washington should be doing, is that, what, what do you think about that type of money for that, uh, for that position, that player? I think that position, it's okay. I think that a guy with his injury history, I would be hesitant to do it. Um, from a positional value perspective, again, I think it's all right. I think that's something where you have to answer questions. I don't know. I, you have to ask questions. I don't know the answers to about his personality, where he fits in a locker room, what it would say to your locker room. Is he the type of guy you want to pay in order to kind of create that foundation within a new regime? All of that stuff, I think, has to be taken into consideration. I don't know a lot about him personally, so that's hard for me to say. But I think if he checks those boxes, then I think that you do it. Because, again, I think it's okay to pay a guard that much. I would have questions about paying a guard that much that's hurt all the time if he didn't check all of those other boxes. So I think that's what you have to weigh. And, and from a culture perspective, he does check those boxes. And I think they're probably going to let Ryan Kerrigan leave, I would imagine, in free agency for you know the obvious sort of Chase Young, Montez Sweat reasons. And you've already let Trent Williams go the year before. And those two guys, Williams and Kerrigan, were sort of the, the, the faces of the franchise for most of the last decade. And Brandon Scherf sort of is in that line along with Jonathan Allen as sort of the next version of that. And I wonder if on some level you can't let all these people go. I mean, not that Ron Rivera has any – what happened before last year is irrelevant to him, but I can imagine even like the ownership kind of saying, we can't let all these guys go. And since Scherf does check those boxes and simultaneously is good, that I almost wonder if on that front maybe he gets the benefit of like, well, we can't let everybody go who people have known, so maybe we have to kind of keep him. I think that that makes total sense. I think that if you're trying to send a message to a very young locker room, paying a guy who's done everything right is typically a good way to do that. Do you have a sense of what the dynamics in the offensive line room are? Like who is kind of the organizer and driving force personality wise in that room? Is it him? I, I, I think Sheriff and Morgan Moses are, are sort of the two, the two leaders. Like Sheriff's a classic offensive lineman where you know, they don't say much publicly, but when he does open up, he's pretty funny and pretty engaging. And I think you can feel that the, that these guys, uh, you know, l- l- like him, you never hear anything. It's all overly positive about him. And he was really gushing at the end of the year about wanting to stay, how much he really liked Ron Rivera. Um, obviously once you move off the season and the emotions fade away and you start talking real, real dollars, he's a guy who's from the Midwest. I wonder if that's a factor possibly in his, you know, two equal some some other team comes at him and maybe he can move back towards the midwest does that factor in but um but i think he's definitely a guy that like from a culture fit in that that lock that offensive line room that is 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 one of the main guys for sure one of the the reason i asked that question is because if you are going to draft a left tackle in the first round which i think is a reasonable choice what you drop a guy like that into the situation you drop him into has a really large role in whether they sink or swim and I think that Tristan Wirfs would have been good no matter where he went, but dropping him into an offensive line room with Ali Marpet, Ryan Jensen, guys like that who are just seasoned, successful pros who are established, go about it the right way. You, know, you talk to guys like I mean, Mitchell Schwartz is somebody I've gotten to know over the years. 
and you talk to him about what it was like to be dropped into that Cleveland Browns offensive line room that year with Alex Mack, Joe Thomas, you know, Joe Batonio was there a little bit later on. I think that stuff matters. So if you think that he's somebody that can really set the tone for your offense and for that room, and you're about to spend a big, a, a huge asset on a really important position, these aren't reasons you make that stuff, those choices, but they can be tiebreakers. So just all that stuff to kind of take into consideration when you're thinking about what you should do there. Yeah, ironically, the offensive line coach, John Masco, who seemingly did a pretty good job with this group, he's the only assistant coach we didn't talk to all season. He apparently is that media uh, shy, as it were. So I, I have no He's an offensive line coach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's, he takes it to the nth degree. Uh, we talked to the assistant offensive line coach, <laughs> but not the offensive line coach. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, but I, yeah, I think Sheriff and Moses are definitely two guys who are, who are uh, leaders on this team. And I think that would help a, a young a young guy. Uh, for sure. Uh, Robert, man, I really appreciate it. I had wanted you to, had wanted to get you on. I know you were super busy all season doing, doing your podcast beyond the podcast, anything else to, uh, to, to, to mention uh, before I let you go. Not right now. Not right now. We're uh, the, the show is going to be back this week. Uh, we're going to have, um, we're going to do kind of the biggest questions featuring facing every single team in the league. We're going to break it into NFC and AFC on two on Wednesday and Thursday. So please come check that out. Uh, we'll be back at least twice a week for the next two months. So back to regularly scheduled programming here. Absolutely. All right. Well, definitely you got, you got to listen to it. It's the DVOA of pot of podcasts. You can, should be listening, <laughs> you know, looking for it every single day uh, without question, Robert, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, man. All right. Many thanks to Robert Mays for his time. Really appreciate it. And of course, I really appreciate everybody here checking out the podcast. If you missed any, of the recent podcasts, I had three last week. I should have mentioned this at the top, but what do you, what do you want from me? Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I did say I talked to Dane Brugler, our NFL draft guru. I talked to Mike Lombardi. I talked to Joe House at length about the Wizards. You can check all those out on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you do your podcasting. And, of course, check me out on The Athletic as well. More articles and insight to come for agency is uh, you know rapidly approaching. The NFL draft is a bit ways off, but we will uh, work it all out. So that's it for this episode of the Standard Groom Only Podcast. Until next time, see ya.